It is December 1914 in Clifton, Bristol. Europe has been in the grip of war for nearly six months, and the dark skies and grim weather reflect the mood of the nation. Margaret Lofty is taking a walk on a rare afternoon off from her work as a companion for an elderly lady. It's not been an easy time for Margaret. The previous year, she suffered a heartbreak when it turned out the man who was courting her already had a wife. As she passes the couples in the streets, she must feel a loss because as a 38-year-old woman in 1914, Margaret knows the chances of her marrying are drifting further and further away. Maybe love has passed her by altogether. But she's not the only woman in her position. So many men have died in battle or been sent to foreign outposts. The newspapers are full of reports of women unable to find husbands. Awful expressions like old maids and spinsters are sometimes used. No woman wants to be pitied. With thoughts like this perhaps in mind, she turns around to make her way home and looks up to see a man staring at her. Has he been following her? She looks away, but then glances back. The man smiles. At five foot seven, he's not much taller than Margaret herself, but he is athletic looking and well-dressed in a smart morning suit and a top hat. Margaret notices his brightly colored bow tie. It's hard to miss. She continues on her way, but he catches up with her and introduces himself as John Lloyd, an estate manager from London. They walk along together, Margaret stealing glimpses at him, his dark, curly hair, his bushy ginger moustache. And there's something about his eyes, deep brown and piercing, mesmeric almost. What woman wouldn't be flattered by the attention of such a gentleman? They pass other couples in the streets, and it would be easy to imagine that Margaret feels a swell of pride. Maybe she won't end up on the shelf after all. Over the next few days, Lloyd pursues Margaret and romance blossoms. He seems smitten with her, and within days, they're engaged. After her last romantic entanglement, Margaret fears her family will be critical of the debonair, rich, older gentleman. So she keeps the upcoming marriage a secret. Two days before she is married, her fiancé sends her to the Yorkshire Insurance Company in Bristol with clear instructions. Margaret tells them that she is of independent means, even though she has less than £20 to her name. She insures her life for £700. That's 10 times the average yearly wage. When asked if she has any plans for matrimony, she lies again and says she does not. Two days later, Margaret and John Lloyd marry at Bath Registry Office. The same day, they take the train to London to spend a few nights on honeymoon. The landlady shows the couple around their accommodation. In the bathroom, Lloyd comments, this is a small bath, but I dare say it is large enough for someone to lie in it, and smiles. However, the landlady is uneasy with Lloyd, and a row ensues when she tells them they can't stay after all. Instead, Lloyd takes his new wife to lodge at another boarding house, but not before he checks if there is a bathtub. Margaret 
is on cloud nine. But unbeknown to her, John Lloyd has dark motives. In fact, John Lloyd isn't even his real name. Margaret has married a man who is constantly reinventing himself. A man who is obsessed by money and willing to do anything he can to get it. And there's another thing that Margaret doesn't know about her husband. He's been married before, and six of his wives are still alive. Margaret, however, won't be so lucky. At eight o'clock on the evening of the 17th of December, Mrs. Blatch, the landlady of 14 Bismarck Road, Highgate, shows John Lloyd and his new wife their rooms. Lloyd deposits their luggage, a holdall and a Gladstone bag, and asks if there is a doctor nearby, as his wife has been suffering from a severe headache since they left the tube. Mrs. Blatch suggests Dr. Bates, who lives in Archway Road nearby. She gives them a key to get back in on their return, and the couple leave immediately. The next evening, just after eight o'clock, Margaret asks the landlady for a hot bath. It is arduous work, lugging bucket after bucket of hot water up the stairs, but once she is done, Mrs. Blatch returns to the kitchen and begins her ironing. From upstairs, she hears someone sighing in the bathroom, followed by a splash, as though Margaret might be washing her hair and has come up out of the water again. Minutes later, the front door slams, giving Mrs. Blatch a fright. She checks it's shut securely before returning to the kitchen, but it's not long before she has to go back when there's a knock. It's Lloyd. He apologises for forgetting his key. He went out, he explains, to buy some tomatoes for his wife. He goes into the sitting room, and Mrs. Blatch hears him playing a hymn, Nearer, my God, to thee, on the harmonium. Fifteen minutes later, she is startled by Lloyd's urgent shouts from upstairs. My wife has drowned. Mrs. Blatch immediately runs to fetch help. Soon after, PC Heath arrives to find Margaret's naked body on the bathroom floor. He is shocked at the sight and tells Mrs. Blatch to cover her up. Smith is frantically pumping her arms. Maybe he thinks that is the way to revive her. PC Heath sends Mrs. Blatch to fetch Dr. Bates and takes over the resuscitation, but it doesn't seem to be doing any good. When Dr. Bates arrives and examines Margaret, he confirms that she is dead. There appears to be no injuries except for a small bruise on her elbow, which could have happened as she was lifted out of the bath. Dr. Bates gives the cause of death as drowning. A few days later, John Lloyd is nowhere to be found. Margaret Lofty's death is reported across the country in the news of the world. The drowning of a bride in her bath seems like a tragic accident. However, in another town, someone else reads the story and finds the circumstances all too familiar. Maybe Margaret's drowning wasn't just a tragic accident after all. I'm John Hopkins, and welcome to Scotland Yard Confidential. 
the show where we delve into the files of London's legendary criminal investigation department. You'll be right there alongside investigators as they search for clues, interrogate suspects, and sort the truth from the lies. There will be twists and turns along the way. Sometimes the trail will run cold. Sometimes it will be a race against time. We'll rub shoulders with notorious gangsters, sit down with informants, and come face to face with cold-blooded murderers as we follow in the footsteps of some of the greatest detectives in history. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad, too, so let's get right to it. The new Moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Moneymaker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. In January, just a few weeks after Margaret's death, Detective Inspector Arthur Neal of Scotland Yard receives a letter. Neal is an experienced officer. Now in his 50s, his hair is thinning and he wears glasses. He is described as having an intense stare, but a kind face. The letter is from the Crossleys, the owners of a boarding house in Blackpool, Lancashire. It contains two newspaper clippings, one about the death of Margaret Lofty in Highgate, the other, a coroner's report about the drowning of another new bride, Alice Burnham. Alice had been staying with the Crossleys on her honeymoon. Before she died, Alice told Mrs. Crossley that her husband originally booked a different venue, but due to the fact there was no bath, refused to stay. A shiver runs down Inspector Neal's spine. The husband in this case had a different name, George Smith, and he also discovered his new wife drowned in the bath. The similarities between the two cases are undeniable. Mr. Crossley urges Inspector Neal to investigate. Word has also reached Scotland Yard that Charles Burnham, Alice's father, has gone to the police over the striking similarities between his daughter's and Margaret's death. Inspector Neal begins his investigation by visiting Mrs. Blatch, the landlady at 14 Bismarck Road, Highgate. They stand looking at the tub in which Margaret Lofty died, a white, clawfoot, freestanding bath about five feet in length. Mrs. Blatch says of Lloyd, When I showed him the bathtub, he seemed disappointed and said, It is rather a small one. 
Inspector Neil thinks the same and wonders how an adult might drown in such a small tub. At the top rim, it is five foot long, but the sides taper so that the base is only three foot eight inches long. Inspector Neil then goes to speak to the doctor who examined Margaret's body, Stephen Bates. He tells Neil that Lloyd brought his new wife to see him on their wedding day, complaining of a headache. Curiously, Lloyd did all the talking. Bates says of Margaret, she was dazed and dull, and I could not get any clear answer from her. He'd wondered if it was a mental condition until he found she had a high temperature. Bates prescribed her a sedative and told Lloyd to contact him the next day if she was still unwell. When Dr. Bates told Lloyd there was to be an inquest due to Margaret's death being non-natural, Lloyd replied, I hope the verdict will not be suicide. I should not like it that my wife was insane. Bates told Inspector Neil that he found it suspicious that the husband had shown so little grief. He also considered it odd that Lloyd had ordered the cheapest coffin possible. But it is what the doctor tells Neil next that arouses the inspector's suspicions. On speaking to Margaret's solicitor, Inspector Neil discovers that hours before she died, Margaret had made a will in which the sole beneficiary was her husband. She had also taken out a life insurance policy. Neil is eager to speak to the newly widowed John Lloyd, but he is nowhere to be found. He has disappeared a much richer man. Inspector Neil now turns his attention to the drowning of Alice Burnham in Blackpool the year before Margaret Lofty died. Is it possible that the same man is responsible for both deaths? Neil goes to speak to Charles Burnham, Alice's father. Burnham tells him that his daughter was a bright, pretty young nurse who worked as a carer for an elderly gentleman at the beach resort of Southsea in Portsmouth. Whilst on a stroll, she met a man called George Smith, and surprisingly, they were engaged a mere few days later. The couple visited her family home in Aylesbury to share their good news, but Burnham had to ask them to leave earlier than planned because of Smith's behavior. He says, he had a very evil appearance so much so that I could not sleep when Smith was in the house. I feared that he was a bad man and something serious would happen. Detective Neil can only imagine the regret that this poor father lives with now. Alice and Smith married on the 4th of November against her family's wishes. Burnham found out that the day before they were married, Smith took out an insurance policy on Alice's life for 500 pounds. Just over a month after they were married, Alice made a will in which all her worldly goods were left to her husband. Four days later, she was dead. When Inspector Neil speaks to Mrs. Crossley, the landlady of the Blackpool rooms where Alice had died, she tells him that Smith had asked to see the bath before they moved in. She also tells him that Smith had taken Alice to the doctor, suffering from persistent headaches. The day after the couple had arrived, Smith had gone out to buy eggs for breakfast, and on his return, he came into the kitchen to chat. It was then 
that Mrs. Crossley noticed water dripping from the ceiling. Smith told her in a panic, Alice is in the bath, and ran upstairs. Minutes later, he screamed down to her, she's dead. The doctor who examined Alice's body found nothing suspicious. Smith received the £600 life insurance payout, plus Alice's savings, which she had worked hard to save. Alice had a pauper's burial in an unmarked grave before her family could make other arrangements. And then George Smith disappeared. Detective Inspector Neal is now convinced that the murderer of Margaret Lofty and the murderer of Alice Burnham is the same man. One year apart, the wills, the life insurance, the doctor's visits, the baths, the cheap funerals, is too much of a coincidence. But he has very little to go on. They don't know the killer's real name. They don't know where he comes from. They only have a vague description. He is five foot seven, brown eyes, and he walks with his knees slightly bent together. That could be half the men in the country. Tracking him down will be like looking for a needle in a haystack. On the 12th of January, Inspector Neal receives a call from the coroner who examined the body of Margaret Lofty. The Yorkshire Insurance Company with whom Margaret took out a policy has contacted him asking for a report on her death. Neil thinks for a moment. If the coroner tells the insurance company that it was not a suspicious death, Smith will inherit the money. He'll go to his solicitors to collect it. It's the only way to catch him. Inspector Neil thinks for a moment before declaring, tell them it was accidental. For weeks, police officers watched the solicitor's office day and night, looking for a man who might fit the description. During this time, Inspector Neil receives a photograph of Alice and George Smith from Mr. Burnham, and a photograph of John Lloyd from Margaret Lofty's belongings. Inspector Neil examines them. There's no doubt. The groom in both photos is the same man. The trap has been set. Now all he needs to do is wait. Finally, on February the 1st, Inspector Neal is informed by his officers that a man fitting the description had arrived at the solicitors to collect his money. Neal races over, and when the man comes out of the office, Neal grips his arm. Are you John Lloyd, Margaret Lofty's husband? Startled, the man says, yes, he is. Then, Neil asks, are you also George Smith? Smith tries to deny it, but it is clear to Inspector Neil that they are one and the same. Finally, when he admits that George Smith is his real name, Neil arrests him for making a false entry on a marriage certificate. For now, it's all Inspector Neil can charge him with until he can prove Smith killed both his wives. Meanwhile, Neil begins a thorough investigation into who George Smith really is. As it turns out, George Joseph Smith is a man with a checkered past. He came from a good family, but when he was nine years old, his father sent him to reformatory school for stealing a bike and shoplifting. In 1898, at the age of 26, 
he married his first and only legal wife, an 18-year-old by the name of Caroline Thornhill. Already, Smith was masking his identity and told the girl his name was George Oliver Love. The pair enjoyed a brief honeymoon period, but Smith soon proved himself to be lazy, wanting to make as much money as he could with as little effort as possible. He was domineering and demanded that his new bride work as a maidservant. He then forced Caroline to steal from her employers, taking silver and jewelry, which he would then pawn. Fearing they were under suspicion, the couple moved to Brighton and then Eastbourne to continue their criminal life. Caroline found more employment at rich houses using forged references written by Smith. However, one day, under Smith's command, Caroline went to try to hock some pilfered jewellery. The suspicious pawnbroker called the police. Smith let his wife take the fall, denied all responsibility, and walked away scot-free. While Caroline suffered in prison for 12 months, Smith remarried bigamously to a woman of means who owned a boarding house. On her release, a vengeful Caroline spotted Smith in the street and had him arrested for his part in their swindling. In fear of what he might do to her when he was free, she fled to Canada to start a new life, although they were still legally married. Two years later, Smith was a free man, and he went on to marry at least seven other women using different pseudonyms. Each time, he would steal their money and belongings, flee to a different city, and move on to his next victim. But finally, it looks as though his greed and arrogance have caught up with him. Smith has killed two women, and when another suspicious death is uncovered, Inspector Neal is going to make sure George Smith pays for it. You tell yourself it's only a movie. None of this could ever happen to you. You feel relieved until you discover what you're watching is based on actual events. Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa and Greg from the Spotify original from Parcast, Serial Killers. In our Halloween special, Real Horror, we're spotlighting three of the most iconic horror films of all time and telling the terrifying true stories that inspired them. Recovering the real influences behind characters like Ghostface from the 90s mega-hit Scream, Hannibal Lecter and Buffalo Bill from the Oscar-winning thriller The Silence of the Lambs, and Leatherface from the 70s cult classic The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Enjoy Real Horror, the serial killer's three-part Halloween special. Listen to all three episodes the final week of October, free and only on Spotify. Maybe it's a way to distract themselves from the horrors of the war that has been raging across Europe. But a media frenzy around the story of the brides in the bath murders excites the imagination of the British public. And when the reports of the deaths of Alice Burnham and Margaret Lofty are read by a local police chief in Hearn Bay, Kent, he can't help but draw parallels with the death of a woman called Bessie Mundy four years previously. Immediately, he contacts Scotland Yard with a case file and photographs. When Inspector Neil reads the file, he finds out that Bessie Mundy was also a new bride who 
had drowned in the bath on her honeymoon. She had been left an inheritance of £2,500 by her father, an amount that would take the average man 30 years to earn. Neil knows that women have little economic and legal power, and when Bessie married, all her money and property would immediately belong to her husband. She met and quickly married a man called Henry Williams, a painting restorer from London. When Inspector Neal sees the photograph of Williams, he immediately recognises him to be George Smith. Neal reads on to discover that on their wedding day, Smith instructed a solicitor to obtain a copy of the late Mr. Mundy's will. He was furious when he found out that the money was in trust with her uncle and that Bessie was given an allowance of only £8 a month. Unable to get his hands on the full amount, Smith encouraged Bessie to challenge her uncle, and she received £138 in interest on her portion of her father's inheritance. Neil is not surprised to find out that Smith immediately disappeared, taking the money and leaving a letter which accused Bessie of giving him a venereal disease. Unfortunately for Bessie, the couple met by chance 18 months later. Smith turned the meeting to his advantage and claimed that he had been looking everywhere for her. He apologized for his behavior and told Bessie that it was actually him who had caught a venereal disease and thought it best to leave her so that he didn't infect her. He also promised to pay back all the money he had taken. The couple reconciled and continued their married life by moving to Hearn Bay. The report also states that Smith had sent Bessie to the local ironmonger to order a bath for their new home. It looks as though Smith couldn't get Bessie's money by marrying her, so he decided to kill her and inherit it instead. Inspector Neal's next interview is with the doctor who examined Bessie's body, Frank French, who lived two streets away from the couple. French tells Neil that Smith had brought his wife to see him, claiming that she was having seizures. He says Bessie hardly spoke, but Smith said, During the last week, my wife was very queer. She had a sort of nervousness and headache. She had a fit on Tuesday night and another on Thursday night. She never had fits before. On the Saturday morning, Dr. French received a note from Smith that read, Can you come at once? I'm afraid my wife is dead. French raced to the house, only to find Bessie Mundy lying in the bath, her feet hanging over the edge, her lifeless face breaking the surface of the water. French says he told George to grab Bessie's legs, and together they pulled her out of the tub. There was no pulse, her skin was still warm, and she had a square of Castile soap clutched in her right hand. The doctor tried to resuscitate her, but to no avail. He tells Inspector Neal, Smith said he'd been out to buy fish for their supper, and when he returned, he found her like that. With no signs of violence or injury, Dr. French recorded it as a clear case of drowning in the bath after having a fit. But, the doctor adds, Smith did not behave like a man who had just lost his wife. Nor did he behave like a man who had inherited a life-changing sum of money. Smith 
hardly spent anything on Bessie's coffin and refused to pay for a private plot, so Bessie was buried in a common grave. He did not even tell Bessie's family that she had died and was the only person at her funeral. Neil also finds out that before he disappeared, Smith returned the bath to the ironmonger and received a refund. With the murder weapon neatly disposed of, George Smith must have thought he was beyond suspicion. And if Inspector Neal doesn't find some evidence that Smith is responsible, he may well get away with murder. Smith's method is simple and effective. The world he lives in is one in which there are lots of rich men with daughters who have everything they want, besides, perhaps, a husband. The shortage of men makes them ripe for the taking. He's not even particularly handsome and has been described as possessing an arrogance that irritates all men he encounters. But still, Smith can beguile and seduce women. His greatest weapon is his charm, which is used to great effect. Besides Bessie Mundy and Caroline Thornhill, he's married and swindled Florence Wilson, Edith Pegler, Sarah Freeman, Alice Revel, and more than likely other women, maybe some of whom are too humiliated to go to the police. He's claimed to have been a baker, an art restorer, a Canadian landowner, a second-hand furniture seller, and an antiques dealer. He's cleared out post office accounts, bank accounts, war bonds, and life savings. His aliases include George Rose Smith, Charles Oliver James, and George Oliver Love. He's changed town, changed his name, changed his job, and then changed his wife, a chameleon constantly shifting and adapting. Smith, it seems, just keeps moving on, leaving behind a trail of despair until now. In all three coroner's reports, there's no evidence of any violence or struggle, and no suggestion that the three deaths were anything other than accidental. In order to help him solve the puzzle and prove that Smith is a murderer, Inspector Neal calls on one of Scotland Yard's greatest assets, Dr. Bernard Spilsbury. Dr. Spilsbury is a real live version of Sherlock Holmes. The Home Office pathologist is helping to bring the Metropolitan Police into the realm of forensic science, which is rapidly developing new and exciting ways of catching and convicting killers. Spilsbury has Smith's three drowned brides exhumed. His autopsy report states that their lungs and stomachs are filled with soapy water, as might be expected. Their hearts and brains are normal. There seems little evidence of violence, but the deaths appear to have been almost instantaneous. The bodies are even tested for poison, but no traces are found. There might not have been any poison administered at death, but Neil thinks back to the headaches suffered by Smith's victims and how quiet they were when he took them to the doctors. Has he used drugs on the women? For a while, Spilsbury is at a loss, but then suddenly he gets a breakthrough from the most unlikely of places. The Castile soap clutched in Bessie Mundy's hand at the time of her death. He tells Inspector Neil that in 1841, a ship called the Caledonia sank off the coast in Cornwall. The body of the captain washed ashore the next day. The shock of going into the water 
had rendered him unconscious so quickly that he still had a bag gripped tightly in each hand when they found him. Inspector Neal immediately realizes what Spilsbury is getting at. If Bessie had died of a fit, as the original coroner's report claims, then she would have let go of the soap. She must have been drowned suddenly and deliberately. But one question remains. How did Smith drown the women in a small bath with no apparent violence or drawing the attention from the landladies who were present in the house? Spilsbury suggests to Neil that they run tests on the same bathtub in which Margaret Lofty died. Scotland Yard recruits the help of a group of highly trained female divers, the same size and build as the victims, to help them with their theories. If these women felt there was something macabre about being in the same tub as Margaret drowned in, they didn't say. Inspector Neil and Dr. Spilsbury attempt a variety of methods to show how the women were killed. But everything they try leads to noise, spillage, or the possibility of physical injury. Until finally, Dr. Spilsbury comes up with a theory based on the way Bessie Mundy's body was found after death. Her feet hanging over the edge of the tub. What if Smith had pulled the women by their feet so that the upper parts of their bodies were submerged and they couldn't sit up. Neil takes it upon himself to test Spilsbury's theory on one of the divers and swiftly pulls her feet up towards his chest. The woman's face disappears under the water and she almost immediately passes out with the shock. Once she is revived and well, a knowing look passes between Inspector Neil and Dr. Spilsbury. They now have everything they need to present a compelling case for multiple murder to the court. On March the 23rd, 1915, George Joseph Smith is formally charged with the murders of Bessie Mundy, Alice Burnham and Margaret Lofty. On the 22nd of June, 1915, the trial of George Joseph Smith begins at the Old Bailey. At one point, the judge, Mr. Justice Scrutton, refers to the war and remarks upon the irony that, while this wholesale destruction of human life is going on, for some days all the apparatus of justice in England has been considering whether one man should die. In accordance with the contemporary English law, Smith can only be tried for one murder. Some say you can only hang a man once, so one conviction is enough. But in a first in the history of English murder trials, Justice Scrutton allows evidence from all three deaths to be heard. The prosecution is using the deaths of the two other women to establish a pattern of Smith's crimes. This use of a system to show deliberation and prove guilt sets a precedent that was later used in other murder trials. Smith elects not to give evidence in his own defense, maybe because he is so confident of his own acquittal. The testimony of Dr. Spilsbury is to be carried out in private due to the fact that it is inappropriate for a young female diver to appear in a court of law wearing a bathing suit. The judge and jury accompany the lawyers to a room where the bath used in the murder of Alice Burnham is set up and filled with water. The diver steps in and reclines as if having a bath. 
Spilsbury explains that a new wife would suspect nothing of Smith's evil intention as she lay relaxed and vulnerable in the bath. He tells the jury that Smith would have stooped over and quickly lifted her legs, possibly even giving her head a gentle push down with his free hand. It would then be a simple matter of holding her in position for a minute or so, with drowning the inevitable consequence. To demonstrate, Spilsbury takes hold of the diver's lower legs and quickly pulls them upwards. The top half of her body disappears beneath the surface. The method is so effective that the diver has to be artificially resuscitated by a court doctor. Spilsbury explains that the sudden flood of water causes shock and a loss of consciousness, explaining the absence of injuries and minimal signs of drowning. In face of this testimony, Smith loses his temper and tells the court that he has not committed murder and cannot be sentenced to death. But Spilsbury's evidence is damning. It takes the jury only 22 minutes to declare Smith guilty. He is sentenced to death and with his confidence and colour visibly draining from him, he is led away to the cells. George Joseph Smith is executed in Maidstone Prison on the 13th of August 1915 by hangman John Ellis. After Smith's shaky walk to the gallows, Ellis places a hood over his head and the noose around his neck as the convicted man cries out, I'm innocent. A moment later, the man who murdered for money is dead. Smith never admitted his guilt and so there is no way of knowing how many other women he stole from, or indeed, how many other brides might have met their deaths in the bath. Next time on Scotland Yard Confidential. It's 1966, and the East End of London is ruled by a vicious gang, led by identical twin brothers, Ronnie and Reggie Cray. They're running protection rackets all over town, charging nightclubs and bookmakers exorbitant sums to keep them safe from attack. The Crays rule with force and instill fear in all who meet them. The gentlemen gangsters seem infallible. But one of Scotland Yard's best detectives, Leonard Nipper-Reed, is on their tail, and he won't give up until he sees them behind bars. Scotland Yard Confidential is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boiro for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Series consultant, Roger Morris. Written by Sarah Moorhead. Hosted by me, John Hopkins. Supervising editor, Kevin Pham. Sound designed by Matthias Torres-Sole. Sound supervisor, Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mix master by Kian Ryan Morgan. Music by Oliver Bain and Dory McCauley. 